the gospel according to the good Dr. Luke, we've arrived finally at chapter 7. Chapter 7. Long way to go still, but we are in 7. We've just come out of chapter 6, and if you've been with us, you'll remember what just finished. What finished in chapter 6? The great sermon. Now, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, 30 verses, it's the Sermon on the Plain. Is it a summarized version of the Sermon on the Mount? No one knows. It doesn't matter. It's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what Luke has given to us. But notice something. This story, now, what we're going to read, comes right on the heels of what Jesus has just preached. Do you know why? Because at the end, first of all, who was Jesus preaching to? He was preaching to his disciples. He preached the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He preached about loving others, especially your enemies. He preached about not following false guides, blind guides. He preached about building your house on rock and not on sand. And then what does he say? Now put into practice what you have heard. This is the very first story that comes out of that, and you're going to see now a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in this centurion. It is one of the most remarkable stories in all of sacred scripture that's easily missed, and we're going to unpack it today briefly, but hopefully get you to a point of understanding. You, you go through the Sermon on the Mount, and you go through the Sermon on the Plain, and you say, okay, I, I, I get it, but what does it really look like? When we finish this morning, you'll know exactly what it looks like. It looks like this centurion. And Jesus makes it clear that's what it looks like. This is the duty of every believer. Listen to me carefully. If you're here for the very first time or you're listening by way of the Internet, three things on every sermon. It's critical. If you're not getting it, find it somewhere. What does the text say? You need to know what the text says so we read the text. What does the text mean? It needs to be explained and unpacked. But we're not finished. After we understand what the text says and what it means, now what? What does the text require? It requires a response. You must respond to the text. The text is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Who, who told us first to respond to the text? Jesus. Coming out of the sermon, he said, now what? Now build your, the one who puts my word into practice is like the man who built his house on the rock. So there's no question that we are called by God to put into practice what we hear every week. And what we read on our own in our daily devotions. But what did James say? Faith without works is? you got to remember that. So, ready? Let's, this is exciting. Let's take a look. The parallel, parallel passage will be in Matthew. There's a few little differences. Not to worry. No conflicts. But few differences. We'll touch a little bit on that. But we're coming out of Luke 7, 1 to 10. Hear now the word of God. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. 
but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, and with soldiers under me, I tell this one to go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man, the men who had been sent, returned to the house and found the servant well. May God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Pray with me, please. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Make it a word of salvation for those who are not saved, whether here in this sanctuary or by way of the internet. Raise them from death to life, giving the gift of repentance and faith. For those in the midst of storm winds, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Here we go. Three things. Very briefly. Only can touch on them. Three things. Number one, under the Capernaum centurion, we're going to look at his heart. Number one. Number two is humility. And finally, number three, his hope. Just a few things before we launch out into deep water. The centurion. Sounds like something you know. We get our English word century, which means what? Hundred. Generally, these centurions were men who ruled a hundred men under them. Give or take. It could be more. It could be less. But that's where we get our English word century. They were, they were commanders. They were they were leaders of the, the Roman army. They were non-commissioned officers, if you will. And they rose through the ranks because of their fighting ability, their ability to, to do what was commanded of them in battle. They had great character. They lived by a code. They had, they were, these, were, these were men's men. These were soldiers' soldiers. These these. Like, remember in our Christmas special, our centurion, he's sitting right here in the second row. That's him right there. Looks just like him. Uh, we should have had that picture from the Christmas special, Tom. We'll fix that next time. But the centurion, this was a man who led other men because he had the ability to do so. But he's the hero of the story. And that doesn't make sense. Why? The, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. The Gentiles thought the Jews were dogs, and the Jews thought the Gentiles were dogs, and they all hated each other. So let's take a look at three reasons why, and it'll give you a little better understanding when we get to the end of the story, why this story is so amazing. Number one, why was he so hated by the Jews? He was a Gentile. If you're a non-Jew, you want to know what the great, listen to this, you want to know what the great prayer the rabbis would pray in the morning? they get up and they would pray, I thank thee, O God. I thank thee, O God, that you have not made me. A woman? We close with that one when we're teaching on a women's lesson, but I'll open with this thing. A woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That was her prayer. Thanking God, you didn't make me a slave, didn't make me a woman, didn't make me a Gentile. Gentiles were hated. 
Okay? Number two, he's Roman. He's part of the conquering nation. Despised. Despised. That's what they're hoping for Jesus to come and remove, the boot of Rome. But then it even gets worse. He's not just a Roman citizen. He's the Roman guard. So that makes it worse. He's armed and he's occupying. He's the occupying force. He's responsible for doing primarily two things. Remember the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, keeping the peace and collecting taxes. That was his primary responsibility as he was over this area in, 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 in the Galilean region. He's over this area and he's the occupying force, collecting taxes, generally oppressing the Jews, but yet still allowing the Jews their, their religion. Do, do you... Do you understand that when Rome came in, they didn't stop religion? Do you know why? Referring to the Roman attitudes regarding, regarding the various modes of religion. This is what they believed. Listen to me carefully. Because you wonder why they don't come in and just simply wipe all of that out and make them worship their God. They had millions of gods, so one more didn't matter to them. But here was the prevailing view of, of, of Rome. To the people, to all of the people... All religions were true. To the philosophers, all of the religions were false. To the Roman authority, all of the religions were useful. Why? They all had some kind of moral code. And morality has a tendency to hold back criminality. You understand how it works? There's a code of conduct. So they were happy with any kind of religion. And all of them have some kind of moral code. And Judaism has probably the strongest of all. So they were more than happy to let Judaism flourish under their watch as long as they didn't become a problem. To the people, every religion was true. To the philosophers, they were all false. It's useful for the Roman guard. Let them have their God. So it gives us a better understanding of the the backdrop. But yet... One more thing on the censure everywhere in the New Testament. Do you know that they're always mentioned with honor? Always. Go with me to Matthew 27, 54, very briefly. Uh, when the centurion saw the earthquake and all that had happened, he exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. What great honor. Here's the man standing at the feet of the Lord Jesus hanging on a cross on the hill Golgotha, and he says, surely this is the son of God. Remember Cornelius? He's the first Gentile convert. Remember in Acts? I didn't bring you that one, but I'll bring you one in Acts here, 23, and it kind of puts the whole thing together for centurion for us. Acts 23, 17, 23 to 24. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this man to the commander. He has something to tell him. The commander called. Listen, here it is. Here, here, here's where we get our numbers. Two of his centurions and ordered them get ready a detachment of how many men? 200, right? Each man had about 100. So we got two centurions. What did they do? They protected Paul. There was a riot that was about to, to take place. They were going to kill Paul. So the centurions are spoken highly of, again, because of their code, because of the way they conducted themselves. They had a special code that they lived by, and, and, and they lived by it. So that's the background of the centurion, okay? This kind of puts us in the context. Ready now? Let's head out into deep water, let our nets down for a catch. Number one is heart. What was the heart of this centurion? Luke 7, 1 to 5. Remember, this comes out of the Sermon on the Plain immediately. It's inserted right here, right now by Luke for a reason. This is exactly what takes place. Jesus comes out of the sermon, and he comes in, and here's this encounter. Jesus enters what? His Galilean ministry's headquarter. That's Capernaum. But you remember what happens to Capernaum later? 
Remember the cities that reserved for themselves the woe of the Almighty? Remember in Matthew chapter 11, woe to you, Bethsaida. Remember that? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Capernaum. Why? Unbelief. You think you're rising to heaven, but you're heading to Hades. So here's the city where he had his, his headquarters, and they have reserved for themselves the condemnation of God. Woe to you for your unbelief. It's remarkable. A century now, second verse, his servant, whom his master valued highly. Just pause on that. I didn't put this up, but I just want to comment on it. Entomos is the word for highly regarded, but it, it's that the English doesn't translate. It means precious. You need to get this. This, is, this, is, this doesn't make sense. Nothing really was precious to a centurion other than Rome. But this servant, this servant, we'll look at that in a moment, was valued highly. And that term should be translated, was precious to him. He was unimaginably honored in his sight. Okay, And he was dying. This makes it even more unnatural, okay? And when I say unnatural, it leads us to understand that this is only supernatural. This can only take place because it is supernatural. The heart does not beat like this. His heart is beating for a slave that is dying. And Matthew, it says he was paralyzed. Matthew and Luke have a little different of the account. It doesn't really matter. He's sick, he's dying. His heart is beating for the slave. What did Aristotle say? There should be no, 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 no friendship. No, no justice for any inanimate object, and he included in that a slave. In the eyes of the ancient world, a slave was a tool. And you were instructed in the ancient world at the end of each year to go through your tool shed and find out which tools were still useful and which were not. And the ones that were not useful you could get rid of, including your slaves. You could kill a slave. That's why this story is bizarre. That's why you have to get behind the story to get an understanding of what happened to this guy's heart. It is abnormal. It is not natural. The heart doesn't beat this way. Okay? The centurion heard, uh-oh, centurion heard of Jesus, and he sent some Jewish elders. What do you mean the centurion is sending Jewish The Jewish elders are doing his bidding. What's that? The whole story is telling you to stop for a moment and pay close attention to what's written here. Because none of it makes sense. Jewish elders didn't do the bidding of the centurions. They, were, they did what they wanted to do. They, were, they, they wanted to be left alone. But there's some kind of relationship here. There's something that's deep. And they ask him to go and, and tell him to heal his servant. Verse 4, the elders now, now the elders, the Jewish elders, presbyters. We get our pres, word presbytery. The presbyters, now they plead, they beg Jesus. It's hard to picture them doing this. They beg he deserves to have you do this. Uh-oh. We're going to get a little insight to their understanding of religion. He deserves. The elders plead. Because why? He loves our nation. And he built our synagogue. All right, a couple things to see. Look in the Greek. Doulos is the word for slave. It's not a servant. He's a slave. Look at the Greek doulos. This means he's bound in servitude to his master. He's a... He, it, when, and now... I just said that you're to look at your tools at the end of every year, and when they're useless, you throw them out. Was this slave useless at this point? Yes, he's dying. Just, just hurry it along. Get rid of him. Toss him out on the side of the road. No. Why? This slave is precious to him. Why? Something's happened to him. His heart's been transformed. Something's changed this man from the inside out. So let's keep going. 
In the Greek, take a look, it loves. Look at the, look at the, look at the word. He loves our nation and, it, and, and he built our synagogue. We've got to go deeper and understand what that word means. And the only time we bring the Greek is when it helps us understand. Agapao, take a look at the Greek word. I want you to understand that this is the highest level and the highest form of love. <clears throat> you know, we talk about love, right? And love can be emotional. Love can be passionate, right? Love between Philadelphia, friendship, love. No, no, this is the deepest, highest. This is love of the will. This is a love that is intentional. This is a love that, that on purpose lays itself down for another. This is the kind of love this guy has for the nation of Israel and the synagogue. It's unbelievable. But this is the story that Jesus is drawing. Remember, remember, Jesus is saying to you, come in. Come into the story. Come in. Okay? I'm going to show you three things. And we're going to take it right out of the sermon that was just preached. Remember, he just preached a sermon. We're going to put flesh now on the sermon. It's easy to hear a sermon and you walk out and go, okay, this sounds great. Now what do I do with it? You're going to see exactly what you were supposed to do with the sermon on the plane. Because this is the guy that's living it. Ready? And we'll go back and forth. From the sermon to this. He loves his slave. <clears throat> Luke 6.35. What did Jesus preach in the sermon? Do good to those without expecting anything back. What's a slave going to give you back? So the question before the house is, when's the last time you did something good for someone who could never pay you back? Number one. Number two, he loves Israel. He loves Israel? Where does that come from in the Sermon on the Plain? Luke 6.35, love your enemies. They're enemies, and he loves the enemy. But it's deeper. It always is. Finally, number three, he loves God and his word. How do we know he loves God and his word? He built the synagogue. What does the synagogue represent? What does the church represent when you see a church building? God and his word, the people. We already claim to love the people. But the synagogue represents God. What happened in the synagogue? What did they do in the synagogue? They taught all throughout the week. Itinerant preachers would come in, right, and they would preach. Rabbis would teach. Preach and teach the word of God. That's what the synagogue represented, the word of God. So this guy loves the word of God. He loves God and he loves his word. So what happens here in Luke 6.45? A good man brings good things out of the good that's stored up in his heart. Pause. Where did he get these good things stored up in his heart from? Same place you're getting it from, right under the preaching of the word. What does he do with his? He begins to live it out. You understand what's happening here? This is a powerful sermon. It's a, it's a powerful story that's easily missed. We talk about the centurion's faith. That's not deep enough. This guy has put flesh onto everything that Jesus just preached. And it gets deeper when we get to the very end, okay? So he loves his slave, he loves Israel, and he loves God and his word. His heart, his heart is beating unnaturally. His heart is beating supernaturally because God has infused it with grace. So his love is unnatural. He doesn't just love the lovable. He doesn't just love those who can do something for him. He loves his enemies as himself, and he does good to those who can do nothing for him. And out of this goodness in his heart flows all the good that's been poured in from all of the sermons that he sat under in the synagogue. Okay? That's his heart. Let's go to number two. What about his humility? This is powerful. Luke 7, 4 to 6. 
He loved not just in word, but he loved in deed. You know, people say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Okay, what does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us? Love is what? It's a verb. It's an action word. Love has feet and hands and flesh, and it serves. And the greatest love is what? Self-sacrificing, unconditional, agape love. This is the love this guy has. So now is humility. The elders pleaded with Jesus. They're begging him. But pause. A little later, a year, a little over a year later, they say crucify him. They're pleading with Jesus for what? To do something that no one can do. Don't miss that part of the story. They're confirming who Jesus is. We know you can heal this guy. We've seen what you've done. We've heard what, what's been going on. Jesus has control over what? He has control over the spiritual world. How do we know? Cast out demons. Jesus has control over the physical world. He heals the sick, the lame walk, the blind see. Jesus has control over the intellectual world. They say he teaches like no one's ever taught. He teaches like one who has authority. And he has command over the moral world. He's teaching purity and holiness. He's over everything. No one like him. And, and, and the elders know it. And they plead. He deserves. Why? He loves our nation and, and he built our synagogue. So Jesus goes with them. He goes with them. But the centurion, centurion sends the elders to request him to come and heal. He hears him coming. Why does he hear him coming? There's thousands of people coming. We don't know how many people following Jesus, but just assume thousands coming through Capernaum. So the ground's shaking a little bit. Dust is flying all over the place, and he hears. He knows they're on the way. Now he sends friends and says, hold on, don't, 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 don't come. Don't come. Why? Uh-huh, don't miss this. Don't miss the humble heart. Ready? So Jesus went with them, and he says, no, 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 no. Tell him, Lord, Lord, we're going to look at that word. Don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. What just happened? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Listen to me. He loves Israel and he built the synagogue. He has rejected polytheism. But now he calls Jesus Lord. He has rejected corrupted Judaism. He is now truly a child of the Most High God. Curious. Take a look at the word curious. It, 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 in the New Testament, almost always. It could be master. It could be owner. It could be sir. It could be a, a polite address. Sir, curious. No, 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 no. This is the Hebrew equivalent in the Hebrew of Yahweh and Jehovah. Make no mistake what he's calling Jesus. Lord God omnipotent. He has rejected polytheism and he has rejected corrupt Judaism. And he is now a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who has been raised from death to life. This is powerful. Don't miss this. One point and then I'm going to show you why it's deeper than this. Some people who, who preach this message will say, well, there's a reason why. There's a reason. There's a, there's a ceremonial law that says the Jew should not come into the dwelling of the Gentile. So the centurion is concerned about corrupting Jesus by coming to his house. Is that true? Well, there, there, is, there is that ceremonial aspect. Let's look at it. John 18, 28. But I'm going to show you that this has nothing to do with the centurion's humble heart. 
The Jewish leaders took Jesus to the palace. This was the night that Jesus was betrayed and he had these corrupt trials, three Roman and three religious. So now they take him to Pilate, right, the governor. But to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they don't enter the palace. Why? They wouldn't be able to eat the Passover. So we know there's a ceremonial law that says they're not to be with the Gentiles. But is that why he doesn't want them to come? Oh, fasten your seatbelt. The Jewish elders and the centurion, two categories. Ready? Watch this. These two categories exist right now in the church of Jesus Christ everywhere. Two categories. Jewish elders, call them anything you want, and the centurion. Ready? This man deserves. Now here, they have made it crystal clear what they are basing their hope on. What are they basing their hope on? Their self-righteousness. Their ability to please God, to broker his favor, to have God smile upon them. He says, this man, we always have been in an aspect of deserving. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. The Jewish elders have they have disclosed their true heart. Now, here's the difference between the two. The Jewish elders are basing their entire hope on merit, and the centurion is basing his hope on mercy, and you'll see it in a moment. The Jewish elders base their entire hope on good works, and he bases it on grace. How do we know? The next line down. The centurion sent word, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve. They say this, he deserves you to come. He's done all of these things for our, for our nation and for the synagogue, and he deserves it. He says, I don't deserve. I don't even deserve for you to come under my roof. Don't come. Jewish elders, always deserving. God, you owe us. You know how many people in the church think God owes them? God, God's their debtor. He says, no, I'm undeserving. You, you want to know how you, you, you know? Let me give you the formula, very simple formula. Right? You, you, you're, you're plugged in. You're giving your time. You're giving your talent. You're giving your treasure. You're all plugged in. You are jacked up as a Christian. You're doing everything you're supposed to be doing. And everything's good. Sky's blue. Clouds are fleecy. Sun is brightly shining. Right? Got that nice music playing in the background. Laying in that hammock. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, from nowhere, comes a storm. Not a sun shower. I mean a storm storm comes in and has tipped you right over and you're confused why you didn't deserve the storm my goodness you've been putting in your time talent and treasure for years and now this why what did I do wrong I, I thought I was doing all the things you asked me to do and I'm doing these things and this is what I get this is the thanks that I get and they walk away from their faith. Why? Their faith was never living in the first place. Why? Because they were saving themselves. Who's saving you? If, if you're visiting today, let me, let me give you something that I give all of the people who come on a regular basis. Let me make this clear. There's only three places for you to live in life. Right here in the middle of a storm. Coming out of a storm. Or heading back in. That's it. Got it? Good. Crystal? Clear. That's all there is. There's nothing else. 
You're either coming out, you're going in, or you're in the middle. That's been promised. The world is broken and everything in the world is broken. God didn't promise you the old line of rose garden. He promised you thorns. But he said, will you trust me when the storm winds blow? How will you ever know if your faith is real if you're never tested? And I can't tell you how many people I sit with after the test comes and they failed it miserably. And they say, I never heard this. Nobody ever told me. Because they don't preach the whole counsel of God. You preach the whole counsel of God and it teaches you something that you need to get. That storm has been sent for two reasons. You're good in God's glory. No, I know, and I'm not minimizing the storm. I'm, I'm, I'm in them all the time with people. I'm not saying that that's an easy way to look at a storm when you're standing in the middle of it. But can't you look back at storms now that have passed? And can't you see that God was at work? And see the glory of God in your, of course you can. A fa- How would you know if your faith is true if it was never tested? How would you ever know? How do you know if love is real if it's never tested? That's why you have the freedom to love God or not love God. That was, the, that was the choice in the garden. Adam, will you love me? Adam, do you love me? It's like he said to Peter, do you love me? Then follow my will. And they turned away from God. The freedom to choose, to love God or not. Now Jesus shows up. He raises you from death to life. Now what? You decide. How much will you love your God? Even when the storm winds blow. See, here's the key in understanding storm winds. He's not just, I hear people say, well, I know Jesus is in the storm with me. Yeah, that's true. But let me tell you something else. Guess who sent it? If he didn't, who did? Who's in control? Who is in sovereign control of every single thing in the universe? Either Jesus is in control of everything or he's in control of nothing. Dr. Sproul, one of his greatest lines, and I've never forgotten it from the day he mentioned it in the seminary, if there's one maverick molecule anywhere, you cannot trust God for anything. Either he's in control of everything or nothing. And you simply have to deal with what it is that he has delivered to you, knowing that all things ultimately are working together For your good. I didn't say all things are good. But ultimately they work for our good. That's the promise. That's what we know by being his. So this guy says, I deserve nothing. Luke 7, 7. That's why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. Want to know what this guy has? We call it a beatitude attitude. What were the Beatitudes? This is what he preached. We'll just show you the one, the very first one. Blessed are the poor. Luke leaves it, blessed are the poor, for there's the kingdom of God. But just go to Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because that's what Luke is saying. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's to know that you are spiritually bankrupt before God. You want to know what it actually looks like? You want to put flesh on it? You're Isaiah, and you're looking into the court of heavens on the occasion of your call, and you see Jesus high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filling the room. And what do you do? You cast an oracle of woe upon yourself, and you go, woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. Why? For the very first time, Isaiah saw the holy God, the sinful man, 
and the gap between the two which could not be bridged by Isaiah. And what happens? God comes to him. God comes to his servant Isaiah, cleanses his lips with a coal from the altar, and does what? Sends him out now to do his work. That's the Christian life. If you've never had an encounter like that with a holy God, every single person in Scripture who has ever encountered a holy God, something has happened. I think today we've lost something about God, and I'm going to make this clear. We love God in, imminent, right? The imminence of God. We like he's sitting in the pew next to you. He's sitting in the pew, Jamie, right there next to you, Jesus. There's Jesus right there. And he's in the bedroom. He's in the boardroom. He's in the kitchen. He's, in, he's on the playing field. He's in the locker room. He's at, Jesus is right there with you. But you know where else Jesus is? He's on the throne of the universe. And he's not to be trifled with. He's a holy God. We can't lose the holiness of God because of the imminence that we want to make him so personal. Yes, he's your best friend. I get that. But he's a holy God. And everyone in scripture who encountered a holy God, something happened to them. Okay? Okay? Finally, his hope. What's his hope? Here it is. We're done. We're closing right here. Hope. What's his hope? Here it is. Here's the key. Luke 7. We saw the heart, right? Right? We saw the heart. We saw the humility. Now the hope. That is why... I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. I sent the Jewish elders. I, I didn't feel worthy. But here he says, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Are you kidding me? I don't need you to come. I just need you to say the word. I just need you to will it. Just will it and my servant will be healed. Do you see that faith? For I, now, you understand what it means to argue from, from the lesser to the greater? Right. He's going to argue now from the personal to God. Watch this. Don't watch this. He's arguing from himself to God. Watch what he does. For I'm a man, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. He's, he's, speaking, he's speaking now. This is the words that he's getting to Jesus. I too am under authority. What does he mean by that? I tell this one to go. And he goes, this one to come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Centurion says, go and come and do this. Uh, Jesus' authority says, go and come and do this. What's the difference between the two? What is he arguing? He say, I understand what authority is. I have it. And when I speak it, they do it. But you have an authority. Unlike the world has ever seen. So if you will just speak it, my servant will be healed. My God, my God. The faith of the centurion's heart. He understood authority. And he knew his men were under his, but he knew that everyone in the world and the entire universe was under the authority of Almighty God. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. Do you understand the faith of this guy? But it gets deeper. Ready? Psalm 148.5, and then we close. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. Do you realize Jesus spoke? Do you realize Jesus is speaking now? Right now, speaking right now. 
through me. He's speaking. The word is speaking. It's into your life. Every time you open that book, that word is speaking into your life. God is speaking to you every single time that you go to him in communion on your face before God. He's speaking to you. And he's speaking what? He's speaking life into you. He's speaking that day after day. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Because if I don't give you what you're asking for, I promise you what I give you will be far better. Trust me. Come to me. Ask me. Ask and it will be given. Seek and ye will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Come to me. I promise I will answer. But I may not answer the way that you expect. And in fact, most of the time I won't because you don't want that. You think you do. Can't you? And I know some of you personally, you look back, don't you? You look back and you go, oh, thank you, Jesus. You didn't give me that thing. Oh, what a mess it would have been. Oh, I can look back at a lot of things I was on my face before. Oh, God, if you just give this to me, I promise you, I'll never, I'll never. God said, you're out of your mind. You're just going to mess that up too. Oh, no, 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 no. My plan's far better than yours, Sonny. Now carry on. No, we think people say, well, God doesn't answer my prayer. Of course he does. You get an instant answer for, to, to every single prayer that you ask. God says yes. God says no. God says wait. You figure it out. But you get an answer instantly. And if he says no, he says something better is coming. You have no idea what you're asking for. I give you this, your whole life's going to be messed up. I can let that happen to you. Children, children and their parents, right? Come on, Sylvia, there's a mama. Mama, I want this. And you know you don't give it to Sylvia. Why? It's not good. Too much candy. Not good. You had enough. But she wants it desperately. You're so mean, mom. You're so, no, no. It's because I love you. And I know what's best for you. That's God. So sometimes he says yes. But I've learned one thing. I rarely ask for the right stuff. And he's constantly telling me no. Or wait. Close. Real simple. Here it is. Don't miss this. Luke 7, 9 to 10. Oh, my word. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Notice. We're all together, we're walking, we're walking along the road, we're getting ready to get to the centurion's house. He was amazed, and then turning around to the group, what does he say? First of all, he was amazed. Do you know that there's only one person in all of sacred scripture where Jesus says he was amazed at? This guy. Only one. He's amazed another time, I'll show you that in a moment, but it's because of unbelief. Unbelief, but there's only one person, not Peter, not James, not John. He's amazed at one person, this centurion. And what does he say? Now, don't miss this. Stay with me. I tell you, I have not found such... Oh, stop. I have not found... What does that presuppose? Jesus is looking. I have not found. I've been looking, but I have not found. He's looking right now. He's looking into your heart right now. He says, I'm looking. I have not found such great faith even in Israel. No one, no one in the people of God even comes close to this man's faith. I have not found it. And I've been looking everywhere I go. Oh, my word. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and what? 
it's like that's a byproduct of the story. Nobody even cares about that. Yeah, the guy's healed. It's not about the healing. It's just a byproduct. Yeah, the guy got healed. This guy got saved. Question, and I'm not asking you to answer it. Remember, you're live on the TV. Don't do it. How would Jesus describe your faith today? So I've gone to meddling. Deal with it. You answer it. It's between you and him. How would he describe your faith? Would he be amazed by it? Would he be concerned? I don't know. It's between you and him. Mark 6, 6. The only other time he's amazed, Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Unbelief amazed him. Unbelief amazed him. How do you guys not get this? He's amazed by unbelief. But this is the only guy in all of Scripture he's amazed by. Why? What happened? 7-3. Ready? The centurion heard of Jesus. We, we could have blown by that. We had to come back. What is that? This is a pagan overlord, Roman centurion in Israel. And someone went to him and shared the gospel. When was the last time you... Sh you I'm, I don't mean to go to meddling. And don't answer. When was the last time you shared the gospel? You know what some people tell me all the time? And you know what? I used to say this. I remember one time saying it to the wrong person. Yeah, Dr. Kennedy. Oh, I like to witness with my life. Good doctor. Oh, and that's a good thing, Tommy. But you must speak it as well. Faith comes by and hearing through the word of Christ. The centurion was saved because he heard about Jesus. Somebody witnessed. Don't you want to find? I can't wait to get to heaven. I got to find who was that? Who shared the gospel with this guy and told him the truth about Christ where he has been utterly transformed by the truths of the gospel? That's, that's, you've, you've, you've heard the truth today. If you dropped in and you're on the end, you have just heard about Jesus. Now what will you do with him? You, you decide. You can continue building a life if this is the very first time you've heard it or you've heard it a thousand times before. You can continue building a life upon sand and you know what's coming someday soon. Or you can change this instant by grace through faith and build a life upon the rock, the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will know two things. Not only will you withstand the day of judgment and that day is coming, but you'll withstand every storm wind that blows that is just around the corner. It's coming. You can't stop it. And by being on the rock, you'll weather those storms. And you'll come out the other side better than you were on the side when you went in. Untested faith is no faith at all. Let the test come knowing that Greater is the power that is in you than any power that will ever come up against you. That's the gospel. That's the truth. You surrender control to Christ. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I alone will give you rest. You've heard of Jesus. Now respond. Cry out, God, be merciful to me a sinner.
and salvation comes to your heart this day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truths of the gospel. The gospel truths overwhelm us. Father, we see what it did to a centurion, pagan by birth. Oh, my goodness, not a man of the covenant, an enemy of Israel as the occupying force. And Jesus says, I tell you, no one, I could find no one with this kind of faith in all of Israel. That is because of the gospel. Oh God, may that gospel infuse us today. May it strengthen us in our faith and grow us up into Christ. And Father, for all those who never before this moment surrendered control to Christ, may they cry out with one voice, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And let them rise, knowing, knowing that nothing from this moment on will ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the truth. That is the gospel. And that we thank you for. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand and continue to worship with us?